Ladies and gentlemen, a special episode brought to you by our friends at Breaking Down the Tape. There's going to be a new spinoff series from our very own Colby. Nobody is shiftier than the shifty hippo. That's the only thing you got to remember. So Jacked and Can presenting you the very first episode of Nobody's Shiftier Than the Shifty, shifty Hippo. Colby's I'm already hacking it, man. I apologize. But that's what Jacked and Canned is, hacking it up. So ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy the first ever episode of Kolb's new show. And of course, shout out to our friends at Breaking Down the Tape. Jacked and Canned. Hey, there it is. Took me a little bit. It's going to be a uh, habitual thing for me because personally, I know nothing about technology and I'm literally doing this through Zach. And Zach is helping me out. Zach, by the way, part of breaking down the tape. And that is where I'm coming to you from today. The show is called Nobody is Shiftier with the Shifty Hippo. That is me. That is Kolbs. So, ladies and gentlemen, I know that a lot of you have met me through Thursday Night Football casts that we do. And so I wanted to stick with something that's going to be a little bit true to the name. So nothing is shiftier than the shifty hippo. That is a true belief that I have, and you guys will be enduring that for the rest of time because now I am officially part of breaking down the tape media as of right just now. So this is the inaugural episode of Nobody is Shiftier, and we're going to dive into a pretty good bit here just to kind of throw a little bit of a preliminary deal as to what this show is going to be about. It's going to be mostly based upon the NFL and the NBA because the NFL is king and the NBA has a king. So those are the two things that really drive in sports. And I want to make sure that I'm promoting that to the best of the ability that I have, because those are the two sports that not only are you watching, but that I am watching. So that's going to be one thing that we're going to talk about is primarily going to be a little bit of NFL news, especially today, NFL, NHL, and NBA news. Uh, going forward, we will have a little bit more UFC coverage, but I'm going to be honest. I close on Saturday night at work. I'm not going to get to watch the fights, so I don't want to talk about the UFC right just now. Now, you guys know, obviously, Zach and Hector with Breaking Down the Tape. We're going to be having on not only them, but we're going to have some of the other guys from this platform. By we, I mean myself. I, I'm so used to doing this with a co-host that this is a little bit different for me. So forgive me every time I say we, I mean me and you, the audience. But we will be having on Braden from Noble Sports. We'll be having uh, Jimmy from Dog Pound and whatever else, a plethora of shows that he does with this. Because honestly, outside of Dog Pound, I'm not even sure what he does, but I know that he's a part of this. So we'll be talking with some of those guys as well. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am Colby, and I am from Jacked and Canned, uh, where John and I have joined with Breaking Down the Tape to do shows in the past, and we have a very good time in doing so. So that's going to pretty much have enough of the introductions that we're going to go through here. For the rest of this, it's all about having fun on this show while covering sports as well as we can. So we're going to start off with some NFL news, right? Because the first thing that comes across the screen, this is a slow time in the NFL, but Aaron Donald has now inked himself a deal for three uh, three years, $95 million. Now, that really 
ultimately sparks the question, is Aaron Donald the most important non-quarterback in the NFL? And originally, I was immediately going to know. And I started thinking about it, and I started putting together names. And I'm like, okay, well, no, yeah, I guess Luke Keekley isn't playing anymore. Uh, Richard Sherman isn't as good as he was anymore. And you think back to some of these defenses, right? You think of a Ray Lewis-Ed Reed combination. You're like, no, that's the most important thing outside of a quarterback. Well, they're not playing anymore. Bobby Wagner isn't the same Bobby Wagner that he was years ago, and there's no Richard Sherman and Earl Thomas running around the same way. So we're now witnessing an entirely different platform as far as what the best thing in football outside of the quarterback position is. And what I would say is there was only one other name that came to mind outside of Aaron Donald for who could be the best non-quarterback in the NFL, and that is Derrick Henry. And granted, that doesn't mean that Aaron Donald is shit by any means. I want to make that very clear. That was the only name that came to mind because I started thinking about it and I said, oh, wow, I think Aaron Donald might be. And then I did think of Derrick Henry. He pretty much runs what Tennessee is going to do from an offensive perspective. If Derrick Henry's not hitting, that team is not going to win. But Aaron Donald, I would have to say, is your next most important non-quarterback in the NFL. When you look at what he's done in the last five years, he has 70 sacks. That is 14 sacks a season. Granted, yeah, one's a little bit boosted by 20 and a half sacks. But I think that that's a fair deal. Aaron Donald should get that kind of money. And when you look at it, this was kind of a deal from Aaron Donald's perspective. Okay, am I going to go out there and am I going to play for making a little bit more money? Maybe cash in on another ring, call it a day, or hell, I can just retire. I don't think Aaron Donald's just going to take the money and be that guy that's like, I don't feel like playing today. Aaron Donald plays with a shitload of intensity. I think you're going to see Aaron Donald doing just fine. The other piece of football news that I have for everybody before we move over to other subject matter, as a Seahawk fan, I have to bring it up that I am a Seahawk fan, but DK Metcalf did not show up to mandatory minicamp. Now, you can come up with a plethora of reasons why this would be and why this might or might not be good. Now, what I would say is that DK Metcalf, the, you don't often want to pay the receiver. And that that's something that I stand behind. But in the case of a DK Metcalf or the Seahawks over the next few years, we got $14 million in cap room for this season. We go all the way up to $65 million next year, and then we have $150 million two years out. So when I look at this, I say, okay, is DK Metcalf worth that? Obviously, we're not going to give him the whole cap. But is he worth paying all the money for? Well, think about this. We won't have to pay a quarterback unless we trade for one, right? So if we're not paying for a quarterback, then we have all the money to spend on the offensive end of the ball. And DK Metcalf might be the very most important player that we have in the offense outside of whoever's playing quarterback. Because even though Russell Wilson's gone, make no mistake about it, the quarterback position is always going to be the most important position. So when I look at what it would be for DK Metcalf, I don't care what the deal is because I understand that these deals are fluctuating at all sorts of points, but it seems to be going in a very massive trend upward ever since Christian Kirk signed with Jacksonville, which is an odd place to start. But I foresee DK Metcalf getting a deal here in Seattle. And that's the big thing to keep in mind is that he has been working with Seattle to make this deal happen. This isn't just like DK Metcalf's being a drama queen. 
DK Metcalf has been working with Seattle behind the scenes, and this is just applying a little bit of pressure. Hey, give me the money. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what DK should be doing because he's worth every penny of it at this point. Because what else are you going to spend it on? There's no one player that you can use right now to change your franchise. Honestly, I think Seattle is going to be like a four and 13 team next year. I don't think we have much hope of anything. There's a lot of people that say that they're going to be part of the playoff picture. If we're in the playoff picture after week four, bless us, (laughs) but I don't see it. There's just not a shot in hell. And when you look at DK Metcalf, he's averaging about 72 catches a year, 10 touchdowns a year, little over 14 and a half yards per reception. I think that that's something that you can at least utilize with whoever's going to be quarterback in the team, especially this next year. It seems like all time with Geno Smith. And for whatever reason, I, okay, it, it doesn't really matter to me because I don't want either of these guys to be our quarterback going forward, but we're going to have one of these guys, if not more. So. I would like to see DK stay in Seattle. I think the trade rumors, you got to get over it at this point because Seattle has all the cap room in the world. They're going to be able to re-sign DK. And long-term, I don't know how it's going to work out in, say, three to four years when we have to pay eventually a quarterback. But I think for right now, it's the move to make. We're going to move over from the NFL to the NHL. We're going to start off with talking about Colorado and Edmonton. So Colorado sweeps Edmonton, and one of the things that I want to point out there, did nobody notice last season when Colorado was tied for the points lead for the regular season throughout the entirety of the season? They ended up with 82 points in a shortened season. I know that everybody's always over 100 now, but last year, Colorado was still league leading in points at the end of the season. Did everybody forget about that? I know they had a disappointing playoff run, but that shouldn't be something that's overlooked. And now they're going to the, to the cup finals and people are like, Oh yeah, that Colorado team looks pretty good. They've been good. (laughs) Like, I I don't know what we're doing here. Colorado has been one of the top notch franchises in the NHL really throughout the history since it's been in there. However, what I would say is that one thing that's going to be a little bit different for them going into the finals, they've scored five goals a game against Edmonton in that particular series. When you look at Tampa and the Rangers, Tampa's given up two and a half goals a game. The Rangers have given up just under three. Edmonton gave up three and a half goals throughout the entirety of the playoffs. So Colorado's probably not going to get the exact same offensive production when it comes to the Stanley Cup finals as they did during this particular series. So for everybody that's out there just assuming that Colorado is going to run train on whoever wins out of the East, I don't think that's going to be the case. I don't think it's going to be even close. I think that the winner of the East, especially if it's Tampa, has a better shot. Now, uh, by the way, I will apologize immediately to Zach and Hector of breaking down the tape. Uh, Well, now my colleagues, because they are massive Rangers fans, Zach in particular, from what I've gathered, because it keeps blowing up our phones. But what I would say is that when you look at the Stanley Cup championship, right, you want to see the two best teams in hockey, and you want to see a storyline. Now, Colorado against the Rangers, it's the hot goalie against the team that should have won last year and didn't. When you look at what it is with the Lightning versus the Avalanche, you're now looking at potential three-peat versus the team that should have won last year. So now we actually have a thing. 
We have a story. We have something to build on. And it's not that I'm hating on the Rangers. I swear it's not. It's just that I think you have much more storyline initiative when you bring in the Avalanche and you bring in the Lightning. That's who should decide the cup. Now I see Braden here in the comment section is throwing out the Golden Light. <laughs> the Golden Knights beat them last year. Uh, yes, they did. And that was the part where everybody found Colorado disappointing in the playoffs because they were the top team going into the playoffs and lost, kind of similar to the Florida Panthers this year. They went into the playoffs looking like the best team in the league. They had scored six goals more often than they had scored less than three this whole season. And then they just shit the bed when it came to playing Tampa. So when I when I look at this series going forward, I'd really prefer it to be Tampa. And speaking of, we're going to move over to Tampa and the New York Rangers, who are currently tied 2-2. Now, I'm not coming in here with this series with stats, because oddly enough, there are no stats that define this series. I have looked into damn near everything, and there's just not a lot. This is what I would consider to be the strangest thing that there is in the NHL currently. So the first carry away headline here is Tampa Bay three-peat, right? Well, if they do, that would be the first time that that has happened since the 1980s with the New York Islanders. And oddly, I mean, that that's very clearly a defining stat like that. That's nothing to, to, as they would say, shake a stick at. I'm going super old person here. You're going to find that out about me. I'm not as young as I look. So I think that you're going to find that Tampa going for the three peats going to be the storyline that comes out of here. And again, I think it's going to be better if it's against Colorado. The second piece of this is that it's time to bolt the fuck up. I'm sorry. We got to say that because I'm looking at three P, right? And I can define it this way Kucherov, Stamkos, Vasilevsky. Do we need anything more? That to me looks like a three P. So both up, we're coming in hot because, well, I mean, Tampa, in all seriousness, I'm a hypocrite. They were the uh, third team I was rooting for this year. And inevitably, I just find myself more and more hockey teams to root for. Pause for just one moment while I sip this beer. All right, we're going to move over to NBA coverage. We know the game three is tonight with the Celtics and Warriors, and I think that there are a lot of takeaways from the first two games that can somewhat define this series. So we're going to look first at game one because I started the show now on the day of game three. I'm sorry I wasn't here for you guys game one and game two, but we're going to break down the NBA finals here for a little bit beginning with game one. Now, the first piece to this is that Steph starts off hot. We're talking 21 points in the first quarter. He was on pace for 84 points. I remember messaging my wife that I texted her. <laughs> it's like, you got to be shitting me. Because for those of you that don't know, and most of you won't, Steph Curry is my least favorite basketball player, not only in this league, but all of time in the NBA. He's like a cheat code. He just pisses me off. He does what he feels like doing, which is just, ah, I'm going to pop a shot from here. It's it's like not even real basketball, and it bothers the hell out of me. And granted, he has changed the game. Now, this is what every team in the NBA does, and I think he changed it for the worse. I preferred when there was still a two-point art. There's not anymore. It's either get to the rim or somebody hits a three, and people would rather pull up from 30 feet than even attempt to get into the post and try to play there. 
it bothers the hell out of me. Uh, they got to do something about this three-point line, but that's way beside the point. Steph Curry was hot in the first quarter. And it, for me, that just was annoying as shit. And additionally, like I said, he was on pace for 84. So that bothered me all the more. Now, when we talk about the guys on the other side there with Boston, you think of Jason Tatum, you think of Jalen Brown. Now, these two guys were both shaking off nerves early on in that game. Both of them had air balls, and I think Tatum had multiple air balls. Like they, Their shots were not close in that first quarter. Yet, at the end of the, th- uh, the first quarter, it was 32-28 to 28 Golden State, which would tell me a different story than what I felt like I was watching during the game because it looked like the Warriors had absolutely dominated them by watching the game. But when you looked at the score, you're like, that, that doesn't fit, but that's what it is. You, you can't change that. You can't just say, well, the Warriors played better, so obviously they're up by a ton. No, the score was 32-28. to 28. Now, Tatum never got out of his own head. He went three for 17 in game one. Only only had like, I think it was 12 points, 13 assists. And you could say, oh, well, he was just distributing. I don't think that that's what that was. I think that Tatum was just scared every time he touched the ball after he realized that he could not shoot. And he just started dishing it to whoever was there. Those became assists. <laughs> like you, you have to, you have to say when your team shoots 51% from downtown that pretty much anything you give them is going to be a good shot because they're just knocking them down. So when we look at this, the the Celtics won that game by going into the fourth quarter down 12 and they hit their first seven threes. Now they've missed their eighth one. So you got to give the Warriors credit for defending the eighth one. But then the Celtics just kept hitting threes after that miss. So the the piece that the, the Celtics won this by is just the three-point shot and the fact that Al Horford had his career game in his first NBA Finals game. You cannot anticipate that Al Horford is going to put up another 26-point effort in this series. And I know that people can argue with me and tell me, yeah, he can, yeah, he can. Sure, he can, but he's not going to. It's, it's just not going to happen. So for the Warriors, they can come out of this first game looking like, okay, you know what? It's a little troubling because Jason Tatum didn't do anything and we still lost, but it's the Warriors. They, they've been down 1-0 in the finals before. They'll, they'll be fine. From the Boston perspective, you can also take away positives. You can look at that and say, our best player didn't even play that well tonight, and we still won this game by 12. But we're going to move into game two, and then I'm going to give you some overall takeaways about what happened in this final series and why it is that (laughs) that this should not be looking so good for Boston. Game two, Tatum and Brown combined for 28 of the 30 points in the first quarter. So immediately you've got this shit turned back on track. You're thinking to yourself, okay, if I'm a Boston fan, here we come. Now, that sounds, uh, sounds fine, well, and good, but Golden State has had this offensive rebounding ability that doesn't make any sense. And I couldn't help but notice it, particularly in the beginning of the second quarter, where 
If Looney's not on the floor, there's no reason that Golden State should be getting offensive rebounds unless it's a three that rims out all the way back to the three-point line. That's the only time that any of those shots should be coming back. But Golden State was battling under the net there, getting rebounds with significantly smaller guys than Robert Williams and Al Horford. That's a problem. That's a real problem for Boston because if they're not able to out-rebound, especially when it's a defensive rebound and you're giving up offensive rebounds to Golden State, who's just going to kick it back out to whoever the hell's open and they're just going to make a three, you cannot win the series that way. Additionally, you cannot win this series by shooting threes. One thing that I don't know if anybody here is going to know is that the Boston Celtics have only taken 14 shots at the rim throughout the entirety of the first two games. They've taken like 73s. I, I think it is actually 70. I'm pretty sure that that's the number. They, y- You cannot win by just shooting threes. There's never been a team in the NBA Finals that has won the NBA Finals by shooting or by making anyway, or even shooting more threes than twos. It's never happened in the history of the NBA. It's not going to start now. And by the way, if you're looking to beat the Warriors in a series, I don't think a three-point contest is the way you want to do it. I just want to throw that out there. I feel like that's pretty clear and evident. You do not want to get into a three-point contest with the Warriors, and that's exactly what the Celtics are trying to do. And oddly enough, they've shot the three ball better than the Warriors so far, and this series is still 1-1. And if the Celtics can't find their way into the paint, if they can't find their way to make easy buckets, they're not going to get anything easy. It's not going to come that way, and they're going to inevitably lose this series. So the, the Celtics need to figure out a way to do really two major points. A, they need to get Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown going. And Jalen Brown's been doing pretty well. Jason Tatum, I know he was hot in the first half last game. He has not looked like the best player on that team that got them there. That's the big key. You got to keep in mind it's the players who get you there. That's who you got to stick behind when it comes to game time. And Jason Tatum has not been that guy. Additionally, Steph Curry, as much as I hate him, I can't tell you that I disrespect him. All the respect in the world goes to this guy. He is just knocking down whatever the hell he wants. I mean, he had 34 in game one. And then in game two, yeah, okay, he slumped off and he only had 29. But those 29 pretty much came in the first three quarters. He barely played in the fourth because during that third quarter, the Warriors ran the Celtics right out of the building. And all of a sudden, at that point of that Jordan Poole shot, Jesus Christ, it pisses me off, man. The idea that they had Steph Curry, who's a cheat code, Clay Thompson, who's a cheat code, and now they just found this new cheat code that they birthed and raised with Jordan Poole. They got three of these guys now who can just knock down a shot from wherever the hell they want. It bothers me to all hell. I hate this team. But if those guys are going to be going nuts like that, you're going to have to... The the only team that's really beaten them, right? So there's been two, but one you can say with Toronto, they like the, the Warriors were all injured at that point. It was just Steph. When you look at 2016, LeBron, Kyrie, Kevin Love. Yeah, they were hitting threes. But they were getting a lot of those points from two, and they were just playing as tight a defense as they could. Another piece of this series, too, if you've ever noticed with pick and rolls, when Steph Curry is coming off a screen, you have to get up on him, and you live with the consequences. 
too many times the Celtics have gone underneath the screen and are backpedaling while Steph Curry's got the ball at the three-point line. And it's like, no, you have to get up on him. If the roll man rolls to the rim, you live with what happens. You cannot let Steph Curry just launch from outside because he's just going to keep hitting, especially if you're literally backing up when he gets the ball. Like, what are you going to do, close out, and you're not even going to get six feet from him? Like, <laughs> there, there's a COVID restriction line between Steph and everybody else. That That's how big of a thickness of a line there has been with a lot of Steph shots. And he's going to hit some of the ones where you're up guarding him too, and that's okay. You can live with that. What you can't live with is just giving him open looks. He's going to capitalize. That's what Steph Curry does. And so some of the other pieces to this series, right? So we look at the major headline that's been going into this series, which is the one that woke me up the most. Because honestly, I haven't been rooting for Boston this whole series. Well, I mean, I have this series, but I hadn't been the whole playoffs because outside of Brooklyn, I didn't really want them to win any of those series. I, I don't care enough about the Celtics. But I wanted to see Boston be Golden State because of how much I hate Golden State. Now, the major headline Steph Curry hasn't won a finals MVP. And immediately, like I started jumping up in my chair and everything when I when I read the first headline of it. I was like, oh, they're talking about it. Something to get me fired up. Because nothing pisses me off more than having no storylines. And now I have a reason to root against the Warriors other than just rooting against the Warriors. And that is that Steph hasn't won a finals MVP. And we know the way this works. Only one time is the losing team had an MVP in a final series, and that was in the 60s with Jerry West. If the Celtics win the series, Steph Curry does not get that precious little finals MVP to throw into that trophy rack and all the rings he's got. Not only do I want Steph Curry to not win this because I don't like watching his play, I don't want him to get that finals MVP. I don't want him to be talked about as top whatever of all time because people are varying on that all over the place. I've seen people say he's a top three player of all time. And I've seen people say he's not even in the top 20. And I'm like, I, you guys are all stupid. Like, <laughs> why, why don't we all place him somewhere that's more reasonable? Like, let, let's just say right now he's somewhere between, I don't know, eight and 15. He's somewhere in that, right? I, I'd probably lean closer to 15. But if we can, if we can just stay in that realm, I think we're in a safer place. So, with that, I think what the Celtics need to do if they're going to win this series is that Tatum's going to have to be takeover mode. And I said this coming out of the Miami series. Jason Tatum's the best player on the Celtics, and you win via your best player. So if you're coming out here and you're shuttling around just with your team, that's fine, well, and good. It might win you a game. It did in game one. It's not going to win you this series. You're going to need Jason Tatum to be a superhero at some point. And the way to start that, because you don't know when it's going to be that he has to be, but it could be tonight, could be game four, could be game seven. We don't know. We don't know until we see it. So what I would say is that Jason Tatum needs to get this thing rolling offensively for himself. And I would like to see him do a little bit more defensively as well, because the Boston Celtics, I don't know if you guys have noticed their transition defense it hasn't just been shit this series. As good of a defense as they have, it's really only effective in the half court. It has not been effective. Full length, transition, hasn't worked. 
And I think a lot of that's because two of those guys that even though they are great interior defenders and Robert Williams and Al Horford, they don't have the ability to really patrol the perimeter. They they don't get out there that often. And Al Horford can, but Robert Williams, you, you're going to find him right next to the rim. And honestly, if he's healthy, the Warriors shouldn't be able to score buckets there. And that, that's been a problem. But defensively, I think the Celtics are going to have to figure something out where they're really applying some of the pressures that they did on, say, Kevin Durant in the first series where they were just launching two guys right in his face. I think that if I'm them, I'm going right at Steph with Marcus Smart and whoever the hell else is out there. And you live with the consequence of that. Yeah, they have a lot of guys that can make shots. I understand the fear in that. But I think that's the only way that you truly ruin their offense is that you stop it from the start. I don't see any other way of beating them right now because I don't think that Boston, by talent, has necessarily all the same things that Golden State does. Because keep in mind, even though Steph and Clay are older, they are massively talented. Draymond Green, he's not going to put up a lot of points, but you know that he's going to rebound and defend like Dennis Rodman. You know that that. Kevon Looney monster out there. He's going to suck up a pretty good bit of what's around him when he is on the floor. You know, Jordan Poole's going to hit some bullshit half court shots because that's what they do. What you have to stop is them getting into their rhythm in the first place. I say you launch at him the same way you did Kevin Durant. You ruin their offense. You get some turnovers and some easy buckets. That is a massive thing. You have to capitalize on those easy buckets. So we look towards game three. Pause while I drink a beer. Game three. I think that tonight, coming back to the Garden is going to be huge for Boston because they did not this up 1-1. Or, I mean, granted, they won game one, so I guess they did not anything up. They got knotted up. But when you look at the way that they're coming out of these first two games, the Celtics are still very much alive in this series. Coming back to Boston is going to be huge because even though I don't believe a whole ton in home court in the NBA, I do think that there is some record of serve that can be held by the Celtics here on their home floor because the Boston Garden gets nuts. And I know that Warriors arena does too. Jesus, I hate that arena. Every time that somebody's disgracing the game, hitting a three on a step back that doesn't make any sense and it's covered and it just drops, the, all the arena just, I hate them. But the garden is a pretty nuts place. It's very uh, volatile, we'll say. And I think that that's going to promote a lot of hostility for the Warriors to walk into especially considering that the Celtics haven't seen the final since 2008. It's been a while at this point. And I think that we're going to be able to see what fanship can do for just gaining energy. And I think it's going to be the greedy, the gritty energy of those of like Marcus Smart, who I think is a key piece of this series because he's going to have to do a little bit of the Draymond Green stuff. We've seen Draymond Green drape his legs over, Jalen Brown should have gotten a second technical and didn't and whatever. I call it what it is, but we're going to need to see Marcus Smart be as annoying as Marcus Smart can be, and there's no better place for him to do it than Boston Garden. And by the way, I don't care what the actual arena is called. I think it's TD Bank, but it it really doesn't matter. Point of it being, Marcus Smart and them boys got to get dirty 
and Boston's the right place to do it. I think they're going to be able to definitely split the home stretch here, but if they have really any hope, I think they got to win both because I don't think they're winning another game in the Warriors arena. I just don't see it. So that's going to do it for the coverage of the inaugural episode of Nobody is Shiftier. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, feel free to follow me on Jack and Canned as well, where I talk pretty much non-sports with my buddy John. Uh, John and I will be recording tonight, probably around 9.30 or 10. It is currently 4, so I know that's a little ways away. But John and I, we like to dive into sports from a very basic standpoint, being that John doesn't really watch sports. And additionally, we talk about things that bring us joy. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, this has been episode one. We got a long ways to go. A lot to work on. You're going to be seeing some of your favorite faces here from Breaking Down the Tape Media as this show goes along. But I wanted to give you guys at least a little bit of an inaugural episode. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Nobody Shiftier Than the Shifty Hippo. Presented by No One.